Amen, amen. Turn to the person beside you and just give them a sunny hill high five while I just get my iPad ready. Great. Excellent. How's everyone doing today? Everyone doing well? Thank you for sharing the word. Brilliant. Thank you. And Rob, what a testimony. I don't know where you are now, Rob, but praise God for that. Excellent. Uh, I love it when testimony just flows in the house of God. It just, I hope as you listen to testimony, not only do you bear witness, but also you, it builds your faith and confidence to believe for the thing that you're struggling through at the moment. Um, that's really the power of testimony. The book of Revelation, which is a very complex book to understand in the Bible, the last book of the Bible that speaks to the end of all things, which sounds quite daunting, um, but the Word says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, as we put confidence in the finished work of the cross and testify to one another like the goodness of God, that's when, that's when we overcome in life and in chaos. And so um, just receive that testimony, that word this morning, and I believe that the word I've got is going to kind of neatly just come under that and just speak to um, us this morning. So we're in a series called Christians Anonymous, and by the way, my name is Dominic, if, you've, uh, if this is your first time, uh, my name is Dominic, and I have the privilege of uh, leading this church with my wife and a great team of guys and girls, and it's just wonderful to be with you this morning, having the privilege and opportunity of sharing God's Word. You know, when we open God's Word, we should come believing that God wants to speak to us every time every time. It's not just a dusty old history book that sits on the bookshelf. This book carries the potency to actually transform and challenge your mentality and speaks to the way you think and speaks to the way you see and speaks to the way you kind of walk through day-to-day -day life in this society. And we need the Word of God in our vision more than ever because the world is loaded with deceit like lie after lie after lie. You watch TV for a few minutes. You watch an advertising campaign that tells you that this mop has the power to change your life. It doesn't have the power to change your life. But the Word of God does have the power. And it's sharper than a double-edged sword. So like when we come and we sit under the ministry of the Word, we should expect to feel sometimes a little bit of the Spirit just kind of just poking us a little bit, provoking us to want to shift with old ways of thinking, to break with sinful habits, to move forward in a pursuit and uh, walk with God. And, um, you know, I say it every week, but we're living in a very difficult time in the history of everything. So well done. You're alive for it. Yeah. I mean, we've had tough days in days gone by, but I think in many ways, these might just be the toughest. Yay. Who's excited about that? You know, with increasing deception, increasing darkness, the prophetic word was that the church has to step out of the darkness into the light of Christ. In fact, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, he says, wake up, O sleeper. So if you're sleeping today, like sleeping in your faith, sleeping in your walk with God, sleeping in your habits and disciplines, it's time to wake up. The Holy Spirit has set the alarm for 25 past 11 on the 22nd of May in the morning. And right now it's going beep, 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 Now put your hand up if you're a snoozer, if you hit the snooze button. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, you know, me too, me too. This morning my alarm went off and uh, I had my AirPods in. So it's super loud because I didn't want to wake up Louise. And I knew that meant that it was time for a run. And I snoozed it. I gave me like seven, eight minutes. I was like, no, no, just, I, I want to. 
talking to my body, body, I want to run with you. I want to get you fit. I want to get that six-pack in time for summer holidays. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Hattie, what's that face about? Don't look with disgust. <laughs> what year? <laughs> 2022, Hattie. I mean, I really want to, but sleep is feeling so attractive right now. And... Um, you know, this is what it means to walk with God, is that actually it's not always about the way you feel. It's not about going, oh, I really feel like getting up and seeking the Lord. Oh, I really feel like reading the Scriptures. Oh, I really feel like going to church. It's about understanding that even though my flesh may want one outcome, my spirit desires the presence of God. My spirit needs Jesus. And so it's about not hitting the snooze alarm, but getting up, waking up, oh, sleeper. And Paul says, and Christ's light will shine on you. So if you're wondering why maybe life feels a bit shady right now, a bit dull, maybe it's because you need to wake up. Maybe it's not because God isn't speaking. Maybe it's not because God isn't working. Maybe it's not because God's having a little sabbatical up in heaven. But maybe it's because you've taken the foot off the gas. You've wandered away from your first love. And I just feel the Holy Spirit saying this morning, it's time to wake up. It's time to come back. It's time to come back to him. And uh, full of commitment, full of faith for the future. But hey, we live in the most difficult time, I think, in the history of everything. Why? Because we live in a time that we could define as secularism. There is a spirit, an antichrist spirit, um, in other words, a spirit that is warring against the purposes and plans of God to um, erase God from society, from culture, from humanity, even the church. If we can just remove God out of society, then it gives us a bit more leeway to decide what we want to do and to become righteous in our own eyes. And really, the last couple of weeks, what I've been speaking about is when God isn't number one, our propensity is to make ourselves number one. And in a society that is egocentric and hedonistic, in other words, self-obsessed and self-focused, it's easy for kind of just the culture to follow suit, and slowly what we find is a society that no longer believes in absolute truth, which is where we are, if you didn't realize, which is why I think it's one of the hardest times in history to live. Because, you know, even if you're an atheist this morning, even if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, it's great to have you here. We love the fact that you're here. Even if you're weirded out by everything that you're seeing and hearing, we love that you're here. But essentially, you would struggle to argue that society is better when you erase a belief in a God. You would struggle to argue that. I know some people say, well, religion produces wars. <laughs> well, maybe in some cases, but I would suggest actually it's normally oil and money <laughs> that kind of produce wars. But actually, I think like when the critical mass of a society stops believing that there is a God, and I'm not even talking about our God this morning, but a God, two things happen. The first is, is we lose sight of a transcendent truth. We lose sight that there may be a truth that is transcendent over my opinions. And when that happens, when there's a breakdown there, we generally make our opinions the truth. So we walk through life and society believing a set of beliefs that aren't anchored into anything more than how I'm feeling on Sunday morning in May. We see this all the time. We see it with the erosion of gender. We see it with the erosion of sexuality, where people self-define, self-determine. Why? Because there is no higher law. There is no higher morality. There is no transcendent truth, which just gives me freedom to decide what I want to do today. 
which isn't good for a society that is trying to flourish. It's just not good. Becoming increasingly selfish and self-obsessed as a society and erasing age-old traditions as social constructs, let me tell you, it's not the pursuit of liberty, it's the pursuit of chaos. The enemy wants this society to be in chaos. So that's the first issue when you take God out of the equation, okay, is we lose a transcendent truth that speaks to my identity regardless of how I feel. The second thing that happens is we lose sight of the eternal game plan. People believe that if there's no God beyond this moment, then all that matters is this moment. And if all that matters this mo- is this moment, then I need to do what I want to do. I need to live the way I want to live. I want to make the decisions that suit me. I'm going to live for me. I'm going to work for me. I'm going to spend for me. And one day I'm going to die for me because I'm not believing in an eternal reality that supersedes this present life that I'm living. And so somehow in the midst of this, the church exists. In a society that is running 100 miles in this direction and is vying for your attention every conceivable hour of every single day through TV, through media, through social media, through uh, ungodly uh, relations and relationships, and always there's this pull to kind of conform to the pattern of the world, always. There's always this pull to kind of get in shape and get in line with the ideals and the ideology of society. But the gospel presents an alternative to that. And this is where it becomes hard for the Western church to receive and swallow because the alternative may make you unpopular. The alternative may mean that you're not so liked at work like you really crave to be. Because what it means for the church in this moment is regardless of what the narrative is in society, it's to actually preach the gospel. And the gospel is full of grace, right? You need to hear this, full of grace. So if you are lost and broken this morning, God loves you so much, friend. God died for you. God just thinks you're you're the apple of his eye. You're amazing, but full of grace and full of truth. The grace thing people love, they soak up that, the truth they reject. There's this great saying that Louise quotes back to me all the time is that truth always sounds like hate when you hate the truth. Truth always sounds like hate when you hate the truth. So it doesn't matter how you coat something when you begin to nail your colors to the mast and say, this is what I'm about. This is what I live for. I believe in a transcendent God. I believe in a transcendent truth. I believe in a transcendent purpose. And that may put us at odds. But understand this. In grace, I love you. But in truth, there's a better life for you. So Christians Anonymous, what is it about? It's about understanding that in the scheme of things, we're not all that. Okay. Excited about that? We're not all that. The future of history is not solely on your shoulders. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So this morning, understanding that as much as we have a part to play in the end-time purposes of God, understand this, it's God's story. Or you could say it at the risk of being cheesy, it's his story. His story. See what I did there? Wow. Okay. 
And so, uh, you know, I think that the messages over the last couple of weeks have been at odds with uh, most of the messages that you'll hear in the week. And uh, they're against the grain. My encouragement to you is don't be offended, okay? Don't be upset. But if you have ears, if you have ears, then listen this morning. Just listen. I think since the start of the pandemic, I think we have sped up our pursuit of egocentricity, which means making us number one. And the devil's clever because how the devil has done this is through creating things that look noble on the outside. Things that look good on the outside, but at the heart are toxic to the core. There's a little word, and it's quite fashionable in certain liberal circles at the moment, um, circles at the moment, intersectionality. And basically, it's like victim scoring, okay? So before you get offended, just hear me out, and then be offended in about 20 minutes, okay? So just hear me out first. Imagine a series of concentric circles that are overlapping, okay? And you need to identify which of these categories you fit within. So maybe you're black, or maybe you're gay, Maybe you're female, maybe you're Jewish. And, and the idea being that in intersectionality, the goal is like the one who kind of lives in most of these categories is the one who is the greatest victim. Okay, this person, because they started 3-0 down because of the color of their skin or because of their gender. And it seems like noble on the exterior because it's kind of like, it almost looks like we're trying to affirm those who have been marginalized by society. Now, I'm not wholly against that. But what I am against is this idea that now we celebrate and champion victimhood. Where now all of a sudden, you know, if I'm a woman, I'm a victim. Now, if I'm a pregnant woman, I'm a double victim. If I'm a black pregnant woman, now I'm a triple victim. And I'm not none of those things, as you can tell. You know, put on a bit of weight during COVID, but not pregnant. Although the new pregnant man emoji on Apple I use to send when I'm full of food. Okay, I'm just saying. Okay, I'm full today. Um, but it's really like this victim scoring idea that how many categories can I occupy? Now, it's interesting, and I don't always do this. But there has been some secular work done on this. I'm just going to try and find it quickly. It's called victim syndrome. Because what happens is if people pitch themselves as a victim, they're more likely to become a victim. If people put themselves willingly into a category where they feel hard done by, then they're more likely going to experience a tougher road and a tougher life where they are hard done by. And uh, there's this guy called Manfred. Okay, that sounds great, doesn't it? Manfred Ketz de Vry, he's a French um, leadership development expert. And he wrote a whole paper on this saying, are you a victim of the victim syndrome? Okay. And uh, he says this. He says that people with victim mentality feel that they are beset by the world and are always at a disadvantage because of other people's machinations or lack of consideration. In other words, the world is just so hard on me. It's what we call, I think, Sod's Law. I don't know if you've heard that. You know, is that, it's probably not the right thing to say, is it, when you're preaching? But Murphy's Law, let's go with that. This idea that, like, oh, you know, if it will go against me, like, if it can go against me, it definitely will go against me. Like, it's, it's actually called victim syndrome when someone is expecting the worst in life. 
In this uh, paper, he says, it isn't just fate that causes a victim to experience more difficulties than other people. They may, in fact, seek out disappointment. Listen to that. Seek out disappointment because it can give them a kick that psychologists call a secondary gain. So, you know, um, I'm trying to use a a non-example. I can't help it. Uh, Adam and Kerry's dog, okay, this week ate a sock. Okay, and... Kerry's in our small group, and she says, please pray for my dog. He's eating a sock. And I was like, well, was it a Jacob sock, or was it an Adam Clark sock? What are we talking about here? Right? Now, if there's victim mentality there, they've got hit one when they come with some bad news and say, I've got some bad news. But then point two happens when we're like, oh, my gosh, poor Charlie dog. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. This is really bad. This is really sad. That's called a secondary gain. This idea that, like, the more attention I can have for this problem, it speaks to my identity. Now, let me just assure you, Adam and Kerry have none of that in them, okay? They don't have any of that in them. But I'm just using something quite futile and quite flippant as an example of this secondary gain hit that happens not only when something bad happens to me, but then when someone acknowledges the badness that has happened to me. Now, I need to be clear this morning, okay, because what I want to talk about is the total rejection of the victim syndrome and mentality. I was watching uh, something on YouTube the other day, and the Google ads, you know, just rudely interrupted my story. And the Google Ads was this man and woman on a builder's yard, okay? And he's talking about his trauma as a a black male in the building industry, okay? And she is sharing her trauma as a pretty blonde in the building industry. And they're almost trading off on categories. And what she says is, have you heard of a thing called pretty bias? And he's like, no, what's that? He says, where you're at a disadvantage because you're too good looking. Yeah, Richard knows what she's talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Richard, just stand up a minute so everyone knows who said that. Richard, look at this. (laughs) Richard has just bought a new kind of electric bike, haven't you, Richard? It's an amazing thing, and it looks a bit like if Harley Davidson created a bike that you pedal, right? It looks like that. Sons of Anarchy style, a bit of a chopper. But it's kind of funny because when he's on it, his beard. It's a tremendous thing, right? But yeah, it's like, so now what we're saying is you're a victim if you're just too good looking. And that's a valid place to find yourself as a victim. Now, what I'm trying to say to you is not that there is not any currency in victim identity, all I'm saying is, is you can see that in the world there is this pursuit to try and get some victim points. And what I want to say to you as the church is you've got to do everything you can to reject that culture completely. Reject it completely. Let me tell you what victim means. Victim means this. This is defined by Chambers Dictionary. A person harmed by a result of a crime, accident, or other event or action. Now, what I want to say is you can be a victim. Some of you are victims to crimes. Some of you are victims to abuse, and it's totally legitimate, right? But I want to say this. It's possible to be a victim when you're not a victim. It's possible to receive the mantle of a victim 
when you don't really have any legitimate claims to victimhood. Now, either way, what I want to say this morning is whether you are entitled and can legitimately claim the right to a victim syndrome, let me say this. The best thing for you, whether you've been hard done by or not, is to reject it at every cost. Every cost. You know, if you have faced some serious trauma in your life, of course, of course, that may need ministry, prayer, support, pastoral care, therapy, whatever it may mean. But still, you must reject the victim syndrome. I want to take it a little bit further now because I think it goes beyond just a syndrome and a mentality to something that we call the victim spirit. The victim spirit is a demonic spirit that seeks to puppet people into feeling like they are a victim. You might think, well, that sounds really weird. Um, Well, it is a bit weird, but there's good news. Because in the book of James that we've already heard reference today, James says this, resist the devil and he will flee. Which means that you can have freedom and liberty from any spiritual agenda by simply changing your thinking. So like sometimes when we think of deliverance, we think of some crazy dramatic episode of a person being free of a demon. And maybe in a few anomaly cases, that's the way, and I've seen that happen. But for the most part, deliverance happens when we change our thinking. We find a greater freedom. We find a greater liberty because now I'm changing my thought process and my thought pattern. Look, we need to get into Scripture, but I just need to give you this to help you understand why we need to reject, reject a victim spirit. Okay, so um, for me, there have been moments in my life where I have felt like a victim. And some of you are saying, Dom, you're a white, strapping young man. The only possible thing to be a victim of is being far too good looking, like that woman on the Google advert. But no, sometimes in my own mentality, whilst that may be true, right, I felt like the victim of life, right? I felt like that. I felt like that. I felt like the victim of faith sometimes. Where like I feel I lose friends because of my relationship with Jesus. Or I felt like a victim in my marriage. I know. I should have run these. Always run your notes past your wife before you speak them out. Now, let me just say, my, my wife is amazing. Yes. She's beautiful. She's stunning. And she's, she's literally and I'm not just saying this to get like wife points. She's, she's one of the most incredible. She is the most incredible human. I know. Right. Yeah, that's true. But my claim to victimhood is regardless of what she does. She can be amazing in all things. She's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. Okay, she is amazing, but she's not Jesus, right? As in we make mistakes. I'm only saying that because I don't want you to think, wow, like Jesus Mark II walks amongst us, right? The female version. Although you're wearing sandals today and a long robe, so kind of a bit Jesus-y in that regard. Um, but like ultimately, what I'm saying is, is like there's been times where I felt hard done by in my marriage. Um, I, I shared this with team on Tuesday. She, she had a, do you mind if I share this or not? Yeah, she's like, oh, where are you going to? It's too late. You know, I was, I was stirring up like in the morning, just waking up nice and slowly in bed. You know, having like accepted snooze about three or four times, you know, slowly waking up. 
And Louise wanted to talk to me about my husband ability. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, the, word, the word she said was, uh, do you mind if I share that? I've got the mic. <laughs> you know, she says, being a good dad does not equate to being a good husband. Right? It's harsh, isn't it? I was like, oh, my gosh. Because every time I play with the kids whilst you're cooking, I assume that I'm doing a great service to this coupleness. But there was something powerfully truthful <laughs> about that, that for a couple of hours left me reeling. I was like, oh, doesn't she know how good she's got it? <laughs> like, seriously? Like, she needs to hang around Nikki Jackson more and see what Danny's like at home. And then she'll get it. She'll understand. But then, oh, just the, oh, I feel a victim of this marriage. Lord, why have you forsaken me? Left me on earth with this woman. What can I do? Like, but, you know, within a few hours, there's a sense of, no, that's the wrong reaction to this. The, the fact that I would instantly regret something that's true because it, it encroaches on my sense of identity and worth. And I think, like, there's three benefits that I just want to say that are offered to you when you receive the victim mentality or the victim spirit. Here's three things that you benefit from. So here's your reward. Attention. They all begin with A because I'm a closet Baptist, okay? Attention. So you get attention. So that's one reward of being a victim, okay? So all of a sudden now people were looking at me. They weren't looking at me before, but now they're looking at me, okay? So that's a reward. Affirmation. Now what's great is not only are people seeing, people are now speaking and saying, oh, Dom, you know, you're a good husband, Dom. You're a great husband. You know, Louise doesn't know how good she's got it. I know that's what you'd all be queuing up to tell me. I know that's what you would be. After the service, don't bother. Just email it to me. It's fine. I'll read them all later. Um, you know, but there's just this idea that, like, affirmation. So attention that moves to affirmation. So on the one hand, eyes are now on me and I feel a bit more, okay, I'm worth something. Okay, now you're saying I'm worth something, which aligns to that need that I have so deep within me. And I'll tell you the third benefit, okay, and it begins with A. And I couldn't quite make it to be A, so I had to work super hard to make it an A, okay? An excuse. An excuse. Or, if you do want an A, an alibi. Offers you a reason to live under a ceiling. You know, it gives you an excuse as to why you're just not really achieving all that. Well, I would do that, but when... You know, I would, I would love to be like that, but, you know, when I was 8, when I was 14, when I was 20, you know, that marriage that went wrong, you know, that bankruptcy I had to declare, that time I served time in prison, like, your victim syndrome can become an excuse. Now, I'm not saying that you, in your victimness, would go for all three. Maybe you don't want attention. Maybe the last thing you want is attention. Maybe the last thing you want is anybody to say some, anything to you, because if your self-esteem is low, then you don't want to even acknowledge it. But let me tell you, the chances are is you're using it as an excuse. You know, um, in my kids, and we are getting to the scriptures, I just need to say that, because I feel uncomfortable when a preacher goes long, too long without opening scriptures. We are getting there, but I just need you to understand the problem, and then I'm literally going to land this plane in the next two hours. Okay. 
so even in my kids, there's a human propensity because they're human. Which means that when Caleb comes home from youth on a Friday and he feels disgruntled by a referee decision that Israel Douglas has applied to him, it's always me, Dad. Yes, son, that's because he hates you. No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's always me. He always calls me up. No, he doesn't, Caleb. He just fee- it feels like that. No, but it, Dad, it's all, you're never there. You don't know. It, it just it always. Uh, and, I, and I always say to him, well, even if he does, so what? Get over it. Just play better. Score more goals, do whatever. Or Judah, when he feels like Caleb's like, what? Or Judah, when he feels like a resolution between the siblings. It hasn't been quite just. I'll do you a great impression. You know, and we just let him go to his room off his own back, just like, ah, oh, I'll, show, I'll show you how angry I am. I'm going to ruin your life by going in my room and being quiet for an hour. Okay, cool. Or Zeke. Zeke, who feels overlooked because of his smallness. My youngest son, five years old, is small. And it always feels like he's the quietest and the one who's least going to get his agenda over. Now, listen, these are just kids and this is like normal. But as parents, what we have to do is train that dysfunctional way of thinking out of them. Otherwise, they become dysfunctional adults. Now, the good news is, is like if you have an immaturity in this, and you have progressed to adulthood in terms of years, but you're still immature when it comes to your identity, you can train yourself out of it. Well, the word can train yourself out of it. You can train in righteousness. Okay, let's get to the scriptures. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. I was thinking about this because I wanted to present this to you in a way. Where do we see this in the scriptures? Okay. And I've called this section Saul the victim. So we're going to look at Saul, 1 Samuel 13. Let let me just tell you Saul's credentials. Saul was tall, okay? He was handsome. Um, He was an obvious candidate for the kingship of Israel. Um, He was the first king that God chose to govern Israel. He was mentored by Samuel, who's like a legendary prophet. I mean, the scripture even says he was taller than everyone else, which is pretty cool. He came from a prestigious family. He was a tremendous warrior and general, as Israel never lost a battle under his leadership until his last battle. But the Bible records that all of his life, Saul was negatively influenced by a spirit. And you remember that David um, comes and plays harp in the presence of uh, King Saul because Saul had turmoil in his soul because he was nurturing a spirit, and it's kind of going, it sounds a bit crazy, but what is that spirit about? Well, I think it's to do with this victim stuff. It showed itself several times, including early on in Saul's reign as seen in this victory. So there's a few passages I could have picked, but I only wanted to go for one so it was clearer. So look at this. Let me just make sure this is right. I've got a different translation. But Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Okay? Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Okay, so the enemy is advancing against Saul and his army. And he's due to meet the prophet Samuel, okay? He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. So in conflict, the practice was this, is we'll make an offering to God and then we will go and fight. We'll bring our offering of worship, then we will go and be warriors, okay? But Saul couldn't wait for the appointed prophet Samuel. So Saul, as a king, took on the responsibility 
of a prophet. Verse 10. Uh, just as he finished making, so as a priest, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Now, in our culture, in our context, it's hard to connect the dots and understand why this is so bad. But what Saul is doing, Saul is operating above his station. Saul was called to be king. He was not called to be prophet. Saul was called to be king. He was not called to be priest. But what he does at the inception of this moment of craziness and hardship is he plays the part of a priest by offering the burnt offerings. And he was not called to. He was not qualified to. And in the Old Testament, that really matters. Verse 11. So Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I love that word. I prefer in the, um, another translation, it was M-I-C-H, Mishmash. I was like, anyone use the word mishmash? What a mishmash of craziness. No? Okay, anyways, I always think that. Mishmash. I thought this is Saul's line of thinking. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Samuel says, you've done a foolish thing. You've, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at John the Baptist, we've looked at Moses, this moment where the, the person who is called by God becomes bigger than the cause of God. And they step into a space that God hasn't ordained for them to step into. Samuel says, you've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Like, that's mental. Like Saul had the opportunity to have his, his uh, legacy, his lineage, his offspring established as kings over Israel for all time. But because he stepped out of his lane for just a moment and thought he knew better than God, God removed that mantle from him. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure, Samuel says. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Who is Samuel referring to here? David. Interesting. David was small, not tall. David says that he was like ruddy, which I think is like a bit rough around the edges, but generally quite good looking, but like ruddy. I mean, maybe, maybe ruddy. I don't know. I just say, put it out there. Just put that out there. Um, you know, but it's kind of crazy because Saul had this opportunity but made himself bigger than the cause, operated as a priest. And I just want to pull out some verses for you. So you're going to need to make a note of these for when you get home because we don't have time to unpack them a lot, right? So in this moment, Saul has made a mistake, but he takes no responsibility for his actions. He blames others for his disobedience. Listen to this. In verse 11, he says to Samuel, you did not come at the set time. You know, it's your fault, not my fault. It's your fault. Verse 12, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. This idea of no, um, nobility. I felt compelled. I did this because you did that. And then his excuses for bad behavior are all about him. Listen to his excuses. Verse 11, when I saw that the men were scattering. Okay, so the men were scattering. Verse 12, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Verse 12, verse 12 also says, I have not sought the Lord's favor. Verse 12, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Everything is like egocentric. You know, the stuff that I did wrong was your fault. So I did this. This is like 
this is the right thing to do. He, he almost like, if you like, uh, you see the undoing of a king in this moment because he makes it all about him. He pitched himself bigger than the cause. And ultimately, the challenge for us this morning, which is like a millennia, a few millennia on from this point, is to stay. do I understand my place in the purposes of God? Do I understand it's all for him? It's all about him? Everything he says, I will align my life in obedience to what he's saying. You know, I won't try to think outside of my lane. I won't try to think beyond the scope of what God has called me to do. And it might seem all incredibly, ridiculously heavy, but the truth is this, is that Saul had his kingship taken from him because he brought the wrong mentality to the kingship. I wonder sometimes how many things do we miss out on in life because we live as a victim, feel hard done by. Because when you identify as a victim, you'll speak as a victim, you'll live as a victim. Okay, by contrast, we've got to put the gas on now. By contrast, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. Here's Paul talking to the church in Corinth about his plight. Okay, listen to this, verse 23, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul says this, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the churches. And I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak and I don't feel weak? In other words, I relate. I understand if you feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul is conveying this utter sense of responsibility that he feels for the pressure of the church, but also the physical challenges that he has had to overcome. I've tried to make a list of the things that categorize his victim points. Listen, Paul was a victim of prison. He was a victim of the state. He was a victim of torture. He was a victim of the elements. He was a victim of discrimination. He was a victim of toil. He was a victim of pressure. He was a victim of lack, meaning he didn't have money at some points. He was a victim of sin, yet he did not identify as a victim or receive the victim's spirit. By contrast, listen to what he writes towards the end of his life and ministry in Philippians 1. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Just swallow that for a minute. So that crazy list of happenings to the church in Corinth. And he does speak into it a little bit. He goes to the Lord with it. And the Lord says to him in Corinthians, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't say, I'm going to remove all those hardships from your life, Paul. What he says is, I'm going to up the ante of my grace on your life. 
You know, and sometimes I think in Western Christendom, what we think is the breakthrough moment for the people of God is when they're delivered of their struggle rather than when they're successful despite the struggle. Like rather than when God shows his love and mercy, grace and favor in the midst of the battle. Even when people have no right to claim the spirit of a victor, they do so because they understand that everything, the purposes that God is at work in is bigger than them. So Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is essentially saying this, is there is purpose in my pain. There is success in my struggle. There is breakthrough in my breakdown. Like in the opposition, there's opportunity for God to be glorified and for the kingdom of God to be extended. Paul understood that despite all of these crazy things, being a victim of shipwrecks and bad weather and torture and persecution, all these things served to advance the gospel. Because Jesus' promise of, I will build my church, is not an invitation to a cushy, easy-come, easy-go life. It's an invitation to sacrifice, to self-denial. That's the way of the gospel. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. But sometimes we make the gospel is, come down off that cross and become everything you ever wanted to be. The whole purpose of what Paul is saying, and what I want to use this example as to help us, is to go... Paul had every legitimate claim to wallow in his victimness. Come on up, James. To wallow in his victimness. In fact, the band better come up because I need to be quiet now. To wallow in his victimness. But yet he chose victory. And I gave you the three benefits of receiving the victim spirit. Um, Attention, affirmation, and an excuse. Let me give you three benefits to rejecting the victim spirit. Are you ready for this? Victory. If you want victory, reject the victim spirit. Reject the victim mentality. You can't have victory and indulge victim syndrome. It's impossible. It can't happen. So you've got to, if you want victory, reject the victim spirit, okay? The second point is this. Testimony. You cannot have testimony without a test. That's the whole thing. When Rob gets up and shares about his foot, if he would have got up and said, my foot's been amazing my whole life. I've never had any trauma. Praise God. There's something significantly less empowering than saying my foot was struggling and I had this operation and God kind of delivered me and like healed me in record time. And you know, I know some of you are carrying some testimonies that you're going to be sharing over the coming weeks. But the thing is this, is in order to have a testimony, you need a victory. In order to have a victory, you need to have that moment where you decide, am I going to be a victim or a victor? You need that junction. You need that, what am I going to decide? Am I going to decide to be a victor? Walk in victory or be a victim? Okay, I'm going to walk in victory. Okay, I've experienced victory or measure of victory. I'm now going to give testimony. And the third thing, and this is the most important part of that whole process, is God's glory. God is glorified when you reject the victim spirit and allow him to become victorious in your life even when circumstances aren't going your way. Becoming a victim keeps you in a place of powerlessness under the thumb of the devil, susceptible to discouragement and the temptation of the enemy. Weak, weary, tired out, going insane. 
But when I reject that, it's not about seeing a shift in my circumstances. It's about seeing a shift in my spirit, in my mentality, in my thinking. Finally, and I'll unpack this more next week, Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let me tell you, some Christians have walked away from the Lord because of lockdowns. Some Christians have walked away from the Lord because they had to stay indoors and not be able to gather with the church. And they've walked away and they've not come back. But Paul says, what will separate us from the love of Christ? He says in verse 36, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But then in verse 37, Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hardship, difficulty, pain, trauma, For your sake, church, I'm pouring my life out and I'm experiencing challenge after challenge, hardship after hardship, uh, toil after toil. But no, in all things, through all these things, we are more than conquerors. Come on, give the Lord a round of applause. And this is what I'll end with and I'll pick it up next week as we land the series. Paul, identified as a conqueror, when he wasn't conquering. In this moment, he's not conquering by the measures and metrics that we use. But yet he claimed the spirit of a conqueror because of what Jesus had done. So the three steps, and you need these for small group. First step this week, so point step seven, we reject the victim identity regardless of our right to receive it. Okay, we reject the victim identity regardless of our right to receive it. Step eight, we recognize that opposition has opportunity written all over it. That bit's really important. We're going to unpack these more this week. Step nine, we believe victory in life is only possible through Christ. And that point I'll unpack further next week. But let me just say, as we just, we'll play out a short song at the end, yeah? Um, Because I've occupied the time, apologies. Um, But I just need you to hear this. If you feel like you have created an alliance or an allegiance with the victim mentality, I'm not judging you today because I feel like this is a journey that I go on regularly. It's something I constantly have to remind myself. So let's just say historic trauma, maybe abuse, or maybe hurt by a church, maybe hurt by me, maybe hurt by someone else in your family, and you're holding on to that today. Where you are, I want you to... I want you to stand where you are with your fist closed as a, a sign of I've been holding on to this. If, that, if you relate to that this morning, don't worry about who's around you. There's an opportunity today just for a touch of the Holy Spirit. And so don't miss out an opportunity to receive from him today. So if that's you, come on. I'm standing with you. Just stand with your hands closed as a sign of like, no, I'm holding on to this. I'm holding on to this. Okay. And this morning, I'm going to pray the first part of a prayer. And then I want to encourage you to open your hands. And I'm going to pray the final part of my prayer. 
And I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to completely just overwhelm you with his love and his mercy because he loves you and his grace is sufficient for you. And if you feel this morning like you need more prayer and you just want more, um, I don't know, just maybe an opportunity to receive something prophetic or picture, we've got three wonderful people on the prayer team today, but there's more who will come down if people need it. I don't want you to just think this is the extent of the ministry opportunity. There is more at the conclusion of the service. But if this is you this morning, I just want to encourage you to stand with your hands closed. Father, this morning, Lord God, we acknowledge, Lord, that sometimes we handle our challenges wrong. And sometimes we make life about us when really it's all about you. And God, we have carried things for days, weeks, months, years. And God, in many cases, we've carried things to the point where they are informing who we are becoming. They are informing our identity. They are informing our worth and our self-esteem. And God, we acknowledge this morning that we do not want to hold them anymore. So open your hands now where you are. So Father, we give all of our brokenness to you. We all give to you all of our dysfunction, Lord. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and occupy us. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and fill us and overwhelm us. We invite your Holy Spirit just to receive our plight this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and fill us completely. Lord, may you transform us from the inside out. Jesus, we repent of these things, Lord, that we've held on to, God. These things that have caused us to limp as a victim rather than march as a victor. And God, I just pray this morning, God, for all my brothers and sisters standing with me today, God, that we would just know a touch of Holy Spirit in this moment, Lord, that we would just feel a sense of your presence just moving amongst us, just removing this old way of thinking, these old patterns, these old syndromes, God, purging us of any spirit that is striving to keep us hemmed in, restricted, and living under a ceiling that you have not put over us. And Father, I just pray, God, that we would flourish, that we would just um, extend and expand the boundaries of our tent, Lord God, that we would know that there is a bigger life available in you. And God, we trust you with our circumstances. We trust you with our hardships. We trust you with our sufferings. But God, we offer them to you this morning, Lord, and we just declare this morning that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Let's say that together. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Come on, one more time. We are more than conquerors through Christ. One more time. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Come on, let's give Jesus a round of applause this morning. Jesus, we praise your name. We bless you, Lord. God, have your way. Receive this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.